Our scripture reading today is from Revelation 7, 9 through 10. This is found on page 1032 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sarah. Well, good morning again, and welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. Um, my name is Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy and privilege to, to lead us in a time of teaching this morning. But before we get there, would you join me in prayer? Father God, I'm just so particularly grateful this morning to be able to gather together with family with your family, uh, in, the, in this local church family. God, to see people, to connect with people, to hear what's going on in each other's lives, to pray together, um, and to hear your word read. God, I pray that you would remind us what it means to be a part of your family this morning. And God, would you give us a taste and a glimpse of what our future eternal heavenly family will look like, even in our gathering today. Open our ears, open our hearts to understand your word. Would you speak to us through your spirit? We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of that Spirit who raised him from the dead. Amen. Well, I'm going to say something that might be a, an encouragement to most of you this morning, and that's this. Christmas is almost here. If there was a year that I needed to hear that more than anything else, it was this one, that Christmas is almost here. And the way that I can confirm that Christmas is indeed on the horizon is that my mailbox has started to be flooded with a ton of Christmas cards. I think Christmas cards are just like our American cultural way of like signifying to each other, hey, Christmas is coming, Christmas is coming, did you forget? Christmas is coming, here's a Christmas card to prove it. Uh, and I've been getting a ton of Christmas cards in the mail, and I actually like, I enjoy receiving Christmas cards. Uh, I like hearing updates on how other families are doing, particularly in this season. Uh, I like remembering that I have friends that I forgot existed for the last 364 days. And I like all the 2020 jokes this year, too. Uh, a lot of 2020 jokes in the Christmas cards. People are really milking that one. Uh, but the best part of Christmas cards, clearly, is seeing all the people, right? It's seeing the, the pictures of the people that, that you know and love. But even better than, than a really good family Christmas picture for me are the really awkward family Christmas pictures. Anyone else with me? You love those awkward family photos? My brother and I, we would go to my dad's house each year around Christmas when we were growing up, and it would just be the three of us. It was a total man fest of a weekend. And, but at the end of the weekend, we, we have this tradition at the very end of taking a selfie in front of the Christmas tree. Now remember, this is early 2000s selfies, so it was a selfie with a disposable camera. So we would just turn the camera around, can, can you even imagine, and just take a, take a picture like that and just hope that it was good. And in a few weeks we would find out, uh, because that's how film works. Uh, and so we would find out in a few weeks that the picture we took was always awful. <laughs> it was never good. My brother's head was almost always cut off. Um, my dad doesn't even know how to smile. He just looks like he's in pain. That's his smile. Uh, so it, they were the worst pictures, uh, but they were the best pictures, because awkward pictures are, are great. Now, I'm not sure if you know this exists, but there is a website dedicated to awkward family photos. 
Are, are you aware of this place? It's called awkwardfamilyphotos.com. And it's, this, this site is gold, y'all. They, they even have it organized by, and classified by like age group of people represented in the awkward photo, uh, the kind of picture it is, the occasion, uh, the ho- different holidays. It's categorized by holiday and not just the major ones, like apparently St. Patrick's Day photos and Cinco de Mayo photos for families are a thing. Uh, but you can just spend hours on this website looking at all of the photos. And I just pulled out a sample for you this morning of just some of the awkward pictures you can find on this website. Here's the first one. Uh, now, this one is a classic. This is the kind of picture my mom would take because it's like how many of in everyone's individual interests can we pack into one photo? Uh, so you have like, like the tights and you have the, the racquetball and the shorts and the socks are just on point for this guy. Uh, well done. And then there's this picture. That's a good one. As an older sibling, I can confirm that one of the best parts about Christmas is that you get your presents and then you can physically dominate your younger sibling and get theirs too. That's what's going on here. And, and then there's this picture. I, I, I just don't even know. This was, the caption said this was sent out as a Christmas card. I, I, so yes, it's a Christmas picture. No, I don't know why they're all sitting on mushrooms. Um, the dog's even on a mushroom up at the top. Uh, crazy. Some people, I don't even know what's going on in, in our minds when we take pictures. And maybe this is helping you remember uh, some of your awkward Christmas family photos over the year. Or maybe it's helping you remember some of your awkward moments, family moments over the years uh, or, or right now. And part of what can make these family gatherings, especially around Christmas time or, or other holidays, so uh, awkward is that they bring together a lot of people, even in the same family, a lot of different people who think differently, who live differently, and who believe differently. And if you're honest, and if I'm honest, uh, there are years where all you really want for Christmas is just to be with the people in your family that you really like, right? Like the ones that are fun to talk to, the ones that are easy to be around, no awkwardness, no tension, probably not very many differences at all. A lot of times that's the family we want, the family with, with no awkwardness. But as we all know, that's not the family that we get, is it? And what we're going to see this morning as we continue this series on heaven is that's not the family God's putting together either. That's not the family God's putting together either. We're in the middle of this series exploring what the Bible says about heaven, about this perfect reality that we're waiting for and anticipating in the season of Advent. So we're calling it, What Are We Waiting For? And in Revelation 7, in the text that Sarah read for us this morning, uh, the the Apostle John gives us an early glimpse, one of the few glimpses we get, at what the people of heaven will be like. When we think about heaven, one of the the questions that we probably wonder about more than anything is who's going to be there, right? What will the people of heaven be like? What will God's eternal family look like? And and what we're going to see this morning as we look at this text a little more closely is that God kind of wants a big, awkward family, but we're actually going to love it. So he kind of wants a big, awkward family, but we're going to love it. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn with me to to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 9. Let's go ahead and and read this. This This is John speaking. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So, so the people that John sees here 
are pictured in heaven. And now last week, if you were with us or if you watched online, uh, you know that Bill kind of walked us through the idea of heaven in the Bible and how heaven is a word that's used in Scripture to, to talk about God's space, the place that God is, being present with God. And so, so we know that, that John is seeing people who are in that state because he's, he's picturing them before God's throne. He sees people who are, who are before God's throne together. And as we'll see later, these are the people who will be in the new heavens and the new earth that, that Bill talked about last week. So that's what John is seeing. Uh, now remember, uh, if you, we, we kind of did a series already on Revelation this fall. We spent most of our time in, in Revelation. So we already did a sermon on Revelation chapter 6, 7, and 8. Uh, so if you are interested in exploring more of the themes or diving deeper into, into this section of Revelation and, and understanding what's going on here, uh, if you get done with today and you're like, wow, I really want to listen to that guy talk more. Uh, you can go find that. It's online and, and explore that a little more. But what I want to do this morning is just zero in on this picture of heaven and, and just give us four observations about our heavenly family that, that John sees and reveals in this vision here. And the first characteristic that we can observe is this, that our heavenly family is bigger than we think. Our heavenly family is bigger than we think. Look back at what John first notices in verse 9. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. A great multitude that no one could number. So John looks, and there are way more people than he expects to see. He has heard that there are 144,000 people, but he turns, and he sees way more than that. And he goes out of his way to note that no one could even count possibly how many people there are there. Now, there's a little more going on to this story than meets the eye. See, way back at the beginning of God's story in the book of Genesis, God called a man named Abraham to, to start the family of Israel. You might be familiar with this story. And part of this calling for Abraham was a promise. God gave Abraham a promise. And this promise would play into most of what goes on in Abraham's life. And the promise was this, that he would have many children. He would have a lot of offspring, not just offspring, but, but lots of offspring. You might have even grown up in Sunday school singing a song about how many offspring Abraham would have. But the, the God made this promise that he would have a lot of offspring. Now, when I grew up in, in rural Kansas, there are three things that you do to occupy an evening. Like if it's late at night and you're trying to figure out uh, what you're going to do, there were really three options for us. Uh, cow tipping, you know, familiar with cow tipping, um, there was snipe hunting. If you don't know what snipe hunting is, I'd be happy to take you and show you later. And the third thing was just to go out and, and look at the stars. And so when I first started dating my wife Ashton and she moved to rural, uh, rural Kansas, uh, I didn't want to end the relationship early, so I didn't take her cow tipping, I didn't take her snipe hunting, I chose the stars option. So, so most nights we would hang out and we would go downtown in Sterling and climb up on top of the roofs and we would just sit there and have conversations just looking up at the stars. Just looking up at the stars. And one of the things I never really appreciated until I moved to cities was just the stars in the middle of nowhere. They're pretty remarkable. Have you ever seen stars like this? It's incredible. And, and that's, that's not even art of all of them. I've heard that there are more, more stars. And God's promise to Abraham, he says in Genesis 15, is that your family will be like the stars. It'll grow to the point that they cannot be counted. That's a significant promise that he makes. And Genesis 15 tells us that Abraham believed him. Now, if you connect the dots, you see what's going on here in Revelation. 
That's God's promise to Abraham coming true. Everyone who has become a part of God's people across history is considered an offspring of Abraham, and John sees them, and he can't even count them all. Now remember, when John was writing this too, in the first century, Christianity was still a small fledgling group. They, were, they could easily have been counted. So John would have seen this, and he would have been pretty surprised, I think. And if we're honest, maybe we are a little surprised by this picture of a heaven that is bigger than we think. Because some of us, I think, whether we would say it explicitly or not, have developed an image of God that sees him as someone who's actively working to keep people out of heaven. Like he's just looking and scanning the horizon for who doesn't make it into heaven. Kind of like Dikembe Mutombo, he's just saying like, no, 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 not today. It's like if we were in the, the middle of an ocean, swimming toward a lifeboat, and God's like swatting us out with oars. That's sometimes the, it's not that graphic, but it's kind of the picture that we have of, of God sometimes. But the God of the Bible wants a lot of people with him in heaven. That's the kind of God he is. He wants you there. He wants me there. So much that he became flesh in Jesus to bring heaven to earth and show us the way to this new creation. That's what Christmas is all about. Our heavenly family, friends, is bigger than we think. Now, what do all of these immeasurable people have in common? Well, the first thing that John notices is that they're all wearing white robes and, and waving palm branches. And both of these were, were symbols of victory in the first century. So the first thing we know about all of them is that they're all somehow victorious. They, they've won something. Now, how have they become victorious? Well, the song that they sing in verse 10, I think, sheds more light on what unites them all and what makes them victorious people who are in heaven. Here's what they say. Here's what they sing. They say in verse 10, they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what's clear here is that they aren't in heaven, they aren't victorious because of some vague sense of being a good person. They're not in heaven, they're not victorious because of some even vaguer sense of having spirituality. It's not their ethnic heritage, it's not their personal merit that they have in common. Rather, their victory is only possible because of the blood of the Lamb, which has washed their robes white. They're all singing the salvation of the Lamb, who is Jesus. Which reveals the next characteristic of people in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that our heavenly family will be bigger than we think, and our heavenly family is all about Jesus. Our heavenly family is all about Jesus. What brings these countless people together before the throne of God is faith in Jesus, and that is it. It's faith in Jesus. This family is all about Jesus. It's all about the one who redeemed them all. It's all about the one, the only one, who's worthy to fulfill God's promises of bringing heaven and earth together. His throne, his blood, his presence are all at the very center of the new creation waiting for us. And all these people can do, this massive choir, is just explode in worship. Jesus' family agrees for all eternity that he is worthy, that he alone can save, that he alone deserves our worship and praise. And that's what makes them one. It's all about Jesus. 
Now, there are many implications of this big Jesus-crazed family that awaits us, but I just want to highlight and lean into one this morning. See, somewhat unexpectedly in February, my wife lost her, her grandpa. He, he passed away overnight. He had battled a number of different health issues over the past year, but his passing certainly came as a shock to the family. And thankfully, this was like a few weeks before everything went down with COVID in the United States, so we were able to go to Lincoln and spend a couple days with family and remember his life at the funeral. And one night during our stay, we were staying with Ashton's parents, uh, I walked into the kitchen and I was looking for food because some things just never change no matter where you go. Uh, So I was on like my eighth trip back from the kitchen with a snack, and I heard my mother-in-law say my name in, in in a choked tone. And I kind of started a bit, I wasn't really expecting this, and I turned back. And what I saw was, was tears just streaming down her face. Now, I knew that she had just lost her, her dad, so she was clearly experiencing grief. But I also noticed that there was something a little bit deeper in her eyes. Like, like there was this sense of, of this yearning desire for something. But I wasn't really prepared for what she would say to me. See, she said, Taylor, the doctor said that dad knew where he was going when he died. Can I know that I'll see him in heaven? And in a moment, I found myself on the holy ground of being human. It's those moments where where, where the unadorned depth of our humanity and our vulnerability is just laying bare before us, right? Because her her question gave voice to a question that many of us, I think, have asked. It's a common human desire. See, one of our deepest longings is to be reunited one day with those we are closest to on earth, isn't it? We ache to see them again, to touch them, to laugh with them, to enjoy their presence. And Advent is is a season all about leaning into and exploring longings like this. And I think John's vision of heaven here gives us a few images that can comfort and encourage us in these longings, that can give us hope in the season of waiting. And here's the encouragement. If that's you, if you wrestle with that question, if you think about that often, just hear this encouragement and comfort for you this morning. If what we see in Revelation 7 is true, of this big family that's all about Jesus. If your loved ones trusted Jesus, they are in heaven, and they will be in the new creation. Even if it's at their dying breath, for Jesus said to the man on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And if you trust Jesus, you will be there too. Now some of us aren't sure where our loved ones stood or stands with Jesus. And if that's you, can I just offer this? I don't want to give you false hope. I don't want to give you empty assurance, but I just want to say this, and please hear this. Jesus wants them there, and he's doing everything he can to get them there. Jesus wants them there, and he's doing everything he can to get them there. Now, that doesn't eliminate grief. I know that. It doesn't make the burdens of the questions easier, but I've found in my own wrestlings with that question that it often comforts me to trust in the goodness and faithfulness of the God whose family is bigger than we think. Our heavenly family is bigger than we think, 
and our heavenly family is all about Jesus. Here's the third characteristic we see in Revelation 7. Our heavenly family has almost nothing else in common. Our heavenly family has almost nothing else in common. Look again at what John sees in verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, lots of people, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. From all tribes and peoples and languages. So this, this innumerable crowd around the throne, they're united in their praise in Jesus. That may, what's makes them one. They've all been redeemed. But they're different from each other in just about every other way. And here's where the awkwardness of that big family comes in a bit. Because in particular, John highlights that this is a global, multi-ethnic, multilingual family, right? People from every nation, tribe, people, and language across every time in history. And they're all represented in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this is also a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. If you look back even further to Genesis 12, God says that Abraham will be a blessing to all nations. Now, what that tells us is that from the very beginning, God's idea was to use Israel to draw a diverse community to himself. That's always been his plan. But there's something that I think we can easily miss, especially when it comes to heaven, that John helps us see in Revelation 7. So just for a moment, imagine that you're John, and you're drawn up into heaven, and you're just looking around at all of these people you can't even count around the throne of God, and they're worshiping, and it's crazy, and you look out there, and he sees people whose skin color is different than his. That's how he knows they're from every nation, tribe, tongue. He hears people worshiping God in languages that are different. These people do not all look like him. They don't all talk like him. I mean, John is Jewish, and he probably looks out and sees mostly a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of other nations, languages he's never heard, colors maybe that he hasn't seen in his own life, cultures that he's never studied, customs that he's never even dreamed of, art and food and music that just have to be blowing his mind right now. And Yana Connor, who is a Christian writer at the Dawson Research Group, she describes this scene so beautifully. Here's what she says. She says, what's significant about this holy gathering, meaning what John sees in Revelation 7, is that God didn't make their new heavenly bodies monolithic. That's important. He didn't make them all blue-eyed with fair skin or cocoa brown with curly locks. Here's what's key. He allowed their ethnicity to pass over from the temporal to the eternal. That's how much he values ethnicity. That's how much he loves it. Now what she's saying goes something along these lines. That the new heavens and new earth does not eradicate ethnicity. It doesn't obliterate culture. It eradicates ethnocentrism, absolutely, but it does not eradicate ethnicity. Skin color, language, culture, none of this disappears. It's all reflected in the new creation. And not only is it reflected, but we also get the impression that heaven is better for it. See, at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, when John sees this more robust vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he says that the glory and honor of the nations is brought to the new Jerusalem. So the glory and honor of every nation is brought into the holy city. Now, scholar Craig Keener explains more what this means. He says, this text suggests that far from obliterating culture, God takes what is useful in each culture and transforms it into an instrument of praise for his glory. In other words, God sees the value that each culture brings to the table. 
He sees the good that they contribute to human flourishing. He sees the usefulness they bring to the new creation. And if we are to believe this vision of heaven, then we need a diversity of background in order to flourish together in heaven. We're better for it. Now, I think this is important for us to to, to wrap our minds around because at least when I think about heaven, I don't know about you, when I think about heaven, I think that heaven will be just like me and my preferences, right? It'll just look, look just like me. It'll be all the things I enjoy with none of the things that I don't on this life. Uh, it will be so full of people how I like, but not the people I don't like. It'll be full of people who see things my way, who, who like things I like, and so on. In other words, it'll be the best of family with none of the awkwardness. It's kind of how we think about heaven sometimes. But friends, please hear this well. God is not creating a group of people who look, act, talk, and think the same. That's not what he's doing. And just like everything else that we learn about heaven as we're seeing in this series, our calling then today is to bring as much of that heavenly reality to earth in our spheres of influence as we can. Now, this takes work, right? It's not easy, and it might even or probably definitely will be awkward. I mean, the New Testament is just a big book that that testifies to the fact that even the early church struggled with the awkwardness of its diversity, right? Of Jew and Gentile living and worshiping together. It was an effort. But 2,000 years on this side of history, it was an effort that was well worth it. I was reminded uh, of that when I was listening to a podcast the other day. And this podcast put on my radar two sites in Israel and the Holy Land that I had never heard existed before. And when I heard them described, I just thought, what an amazing picture of the global family of God. The first one uh, is on the Mount of Olives, and it's called the Church of Paternoster, which is, Paternoster is just Latin for our Father. So it's it's about the Lord's Prayer. And if you went there today, you would see a large courtyard like this, with, with, in marble, written the Lord's Prayer in over a hundred different languages. And if you went there today, I mean, people travel from all over the world to the Holy Land, uh, you would probably interact with people from different cultures and hear them speaking this prayer as they read it in their own language. I mean, what an amazing picture of the effect of the gospel. Different people from different places and different languages, but they all share something so deeply in common. The the other uh, picture of this is the Church of the Annunciation, which is in, in Nazareth. And, and at the Church of the Annunciation, they paid hundreds of people to depict Mary and Jesus in their own cultural art forms. And you see a couple of them up here. Over 200 different pictures. And again, it's the same person, it's the same story, but it's representative of all the peoples and nations reached by the gospel of Jesus. So deeply sharing something in common. And friends, that's a picture of what our heavenly family will look like. We'll just be closer to it than we might be right now. So how can we see this reality more fully in our church today? You don't have to go to Israel to see it. I think that one of the first steps we have to get to is we have to start by having empathy for various cultures and experiences of those just right around us, even in our own church family, our own neighborhoods, our own schools. And for some of us, for most of us, that will mean actively discomforting ourselves and our preferences for the sake of the other person. It'll mean hearing things that we don't want to hear about other people's experience and backgrounds. It'll mean staying curious and not getting defensive as we learn and make mistakes along the way. 
It should mean reading books and perspectives that are different from ours, especially that come from within the Christian community where we all share something so deeply in common. And more than anything, it means not just tolerating diversity, but just like our God, delighting in it. Delighting in it. Our heavenly family will have almost nothing else in common than Jesus. And that might be a hard thing. It might be an awkward thing today. I don't know if it'll be awkward in heaven. But it's absolutely a good thing. Now there's one final characteristic that you can't help but see in in reading this text. And it goes like this. That our heavenly family knows only joy. Our heavenly family knows only joy. The resounding tone of Revelation 7 is joy. You can't read this without seeing the joy pop up all over the place. The grand finale of, of, of human history in the new heavens and new earth can't be described as anything but joy. And we get a taste of it here at the end of, of chapter 7. Read with me, starting in, in verse 15. Therefore they, these heaven people, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this joy to come in the new creation and and the pleasures that await us in our heavenly home. Uh, But for now, it's worth noting this, that the joy seen here that we experience is experienced together. In fact, the joy comes from being together with all of these other people. What we see pictured here is not just individual joy, it is deeply relational joy. Deeply relational joy. It's the joy of intimacy with Jesus. Did you notice that language there? It's so beautiful. Of the lamb becoming our tender shepherd. It's the joy of intimacy with Jesus. It's the joy of deepened intimacy with one another. When we think about heaven, we often wonder if those we knew on earth will be in heaven, if we'll know them too. And while that question isn't answered directly, heaven is envisioned as a place where we are known deeper by others and by God than ever on earth. It's also pictured as a place where we know God and know others more deeply than we ever did on earth. See, there are countless people, yes, impossible to number, but a boundless intimacy with God and others. I love how, how Scott McKnight imagines this reality in his book, The Heaven Promise. This is amazing. He says, heaven will be all of us attending to God while knowing one another in an endless fellowship of deep joy. And yes, absolutely, part of that joy comes from seeing and being with people we have known in this life, for sure. But don't forget, heaven is not just a reunion of earthly friends and family. It's the union of our new family, our heavenly family. Friends, the real joy of heaven, and I really mean this, is not that our friends and family are there. It's that all who are there are our friends and family. And we will know them completely and truly in a way we can hardly imagine here. And if that's what the people John sees are experiencing, no wonder their song is full of joy, right? If this is what we have to look forward to, our song today can be full of joy too and how we live and how we speak and how we work and how we interact with those around us. Because even in the middle of momentary sorrow, even in the darkness of a season like Advent, 
even in the depths of our longings and desires, even when grief lingers a bit too long in life, we can sing the song of Jesus with joy, knowing that one day together with the biggest and most diverse family imaginable, joy will be all we know. Let's pray. Father God, would you infuse our lives today with this glimpse of heavenly reality? Would you give us the courage and conviction to join your work of invading earth with the presence and realities of heaven, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven? So God, would your kingdom come in a way that that helps us to see what it looks like to model the diversity and unity of your kingdom? God, would you give our lives just this sense of, of deep and resounding joy that's inexplicable, uncontainable, we can't even imagine, but that we can just shine to the people around us, even in the depths of longing and aching. And God, would you encourage us and comfort us with the hope that, that your heavenly family would be bigger than we think, and that we'd be reunited and united with this new family in eternal joy. Would that be our reality today, and would it strengthen us as we wait for that day. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of His Spirit. Amen.